Well, we've been in uh, Ephesians, and uh, uh, we're asking the question, I'm starting off today by asking the question, uh, what is the gospel? Anybody know what the word means? I know the teens should know. Good news, right? And it literally means good news. When, you, when somebody says the gospel, means good news. We say the gospel of Jesus, we're saying it's the good news of Jesus. And as Christians, we know that the Bible tells us to preach the gospel and proclaim the gospel and share the gospel and live the gospel. I mean, that's the, one of the core central things about what does it mean to be a Christian. You've got to know what's the gospel. What's the gospel about? Uh, a while ago, we actually looked at that question in depth in a Sunday school class when we asked the question, what's the gospel? And we kind of researched those things. And so if you were in that class, I may call on you to, to help me out with some answers here in a minute. But to someone who's truly Christian, it's, uh, there's a lot of things that are about the gospel message. This is the cornerstone of what we think about when we think about being a Christian. Um, but before we can really comprehend the good news, now I want to see if any of those people that took that Sunday school class remember, part of the gospel message, the very first element of the gospel message, the good news was what? It's been a while, so you have to think for a second. Before you can really tackle the good news, I guess I could put it that way, you've got to hear what? The bad news. Right? It's kind of like if a doctor came up to you and said, you know what, I want you to know, we have found the cure for cancer. You go, that's good news. What if the doctor said, by the way, you're riddled with cancer. Do you see how the good news just got way better? Because it pertains to you. That's part of the gospel message, when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not just good news in general, it's meant to be good news for you. And so when we share the gospel, part of sharing the gospel is sharing the, the bad news, right? So why am I sharing the bad news? That's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the bad news of the good news, right? The bad news of the gospel, okay? Why am I sharing this? Well, like I said, it's the gospel. We need to hit this first. But also because we're studying the book of Ephesians. Uh, one of the things I believe in very much so as part of being good biblical preaching is to preach what we call expository, where we work through the Bible. That I'm not just up here randomly picking out different topics each week, but I'm actually saying we're going to study the book of Ephesians. We go through and we see we preach the word like Paul commands Timothy. Preach the word, Right? And so we go through the Bible step at a time and say, what does the Bible teach? And whatever, wherever we go in the Bible, that's where we're going. And so it just so happens that we're in Ephesians and we're getting ready to hit the bad news. But before we hit the bad news, let me give a quick review. We were in chapter 1. And what's the theme for chapter 1? Remember, or the theme for the whole book, really? How big is your view of God? And we had a, we had a picture there for you. This was actually a, this that behind there. Anybody remember what that was, what that structure is it was, it's not the Colosseum it's in starts with an A amphitheater and this is in the city of Ephesus right and in the city of Ephesus where the ruins are today this was in there and I thought what a great way to start off an amphitheater it amplify, amplifies right the greatness of God uh, and so we, we hit that the second half of chapter 1 stemmed from that how big is your view of God and I always wish I would have lightened this up the picture came out a little bit dark and so chalk that up to my lack of you know graphic design okay but that that building in the background is actually the temple of Artemis now you may be familiar with the name Artemis because in Ephesus uh, they ran tried to run Paul out by chanting great is Artemis of the Ephesians right Artemis was a Greek goddess She's not so great anymore. All that's left is a, one crumbled down building. It used to be one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. It's a crumbled down building. And there's some coins in, a, a, in an old museum in the basement in London. That's all that's left of Artemis. A crumbled down building and some old coins. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, but much greater is Christ and his church that started in such a small way, almost run out by Artemis, but here... Artemis is gone, Christ reigns, right? And so, but now we're in chapter 2, and the theme for chapter 2, um, uh, just kind of where chapter 2 goes, and, and actually heading into chapter 3 is this. Um, how big is your view now of God's salvation? Uh, it really gets personal in chapter 2, not just 
in the big picture of who God is, and not just in His church and His people, but really specifically down to individuals. And so we're going to take a look at this, okay? And this is why we're talking about this. So we're in chapter 2 and talking about how big is your view of God's salvation. So we're going to look there. Chapter 2 starts off with... Uh, one sentence again. Now, some of you remember chapter 1 was two big sentences, verses 1 through 14, 15 to 23. Well, chapter 2 starts off, and the first seven verses is one sentence in the original Greek. One big long sentence. And uh, as one theologian put it this way, he said, uh, Paul's thought flows on regardless of the rules of grammar. Okay, in chapter 2, he says, He begins sentences but never finishes them. He begins with one construction of words, and halfway through he glides into another and forgets the first one. And you really see that in the book of Ephesus or the book of Ephesians as you're flowing through. It's like he builds thought upon thought. He just keeps doing that. It's it's not like his other books that he's written, his other letters he wrote. In fact, uh, chapter two, the very first in the in the Greek, the very first actual verb that's a main verb that's used is not until verse five. And so the whole big first section is just kind of building, 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 and then he gets to verse 5, and there's, this, he, he, there's a main verb that's used in the sentence structure. And so, I mean, this, is, this, this chapter is just broken up. Once again, I would describe it this way. It's almost like Paul... Hey, let, me, let me think about it this way. Have you ever seen a little kid, and they just have a great dessert? And they're trying to describe the dessert, and it's almost like they're stuttering and stammering over them. It was, it was just wonderful, amazing, great, tasty, chocolatey, and they just keep going on like that. And they never really get to what they're trying to say. That's kind of what Paul's doing. God is great and amazing and big, and He's wonderful, and, and He's powerful, and, and He saves people. And, and in His church, and He just keeps going on and on, and, and really... Chapter 2 is just flowing from what he was doing in chapter 1. He started a new sentence at least, but he's doing the same thing again. He's describing the greatness of who God is. Now, I'm getting ready to jump in. I know you guys are you're, you're, you're chomping at the bit. You're ready for chapter 2, right? But before I do, I'm going to give you three uh, cautions or precautions to take before you jump into this particular passage. Okay? So caution number one, let's jump to it here. Three warnings. Uh, number one, there's a temptation when you read this. There's a temptation to disconnect because we're going to describe the sinfulness of man. I'm just going to tell you, that's where we're going. Okay? There's a temptation when you hear it to disconnect this description from yourself. You're going to hear it and you're going to be tempted to disconnect it from you. Okay? But remember that Paul states in these verses... He starts off by saying, you Ephesians, and technically he's actually referring to them as Gentiles, the fact that they're not Jews. He says you, but halfway through, he switches to we. Right? We. So Paul does not exclude himself from this description, and neither should we. Right? Neither should we. A second temptation you're going to encounter is going to be the temptation, you're going to be tempted to disconnect this description from your current state, how you are now. Part of that is because it's written in the past tense. But one thing we're not going to get to is this. Paul talks about all these past tense things. You were this and you were this and we were this. But he doesn't switch when we get to the end of it. He doesn't switch by saying, but now we're really good. That's not what he does. The switch that he makes is, we were this, we were this, we were this. But God is amazing. God is good. He switches and he starts talking about how great God is. And so that's important. You'll be tempted to disconnect this from your current state, how you are right now, what you're like. But it's so important to understand this, how it relates to you even now. And so we need to keep this in mind, that when we think away from our own sinfulness, it's not to our goodness, but in fact it should be towards God's goodness or Christ's goodness. If I might tarry on this point for just a moment. Many of us, I'm throwing myself in this mix here, many of us have no problem at all talking about how sinful the world is. That's easy to do, isn't it? And the world's pretty messed up. It's easy to do that. I might even say this. There are many pastors today that make, if you want to put it this way, they make their living preaching about how bad everybody else is. 
how bad the world is. You know, it reminds me of Paul. Paul talks about in the last days there will be people who gather for themselves speakers who they listen to because they have itching ears, right? And see, it's, it's easy to go, and go to a church service and hear the pastor talk about how, how sinful the world is, all the, the, the homosexuals and the, you know, this and this, and they start talking about how bad the world... Man, it's easy to listen to something like that, right? But we are still sinners. Our hope is not to be found in our goodness and how good we are. Our hope is to be found in Christ alone. And so don't disconnect yourself from the idea of being sinful people. Frankly, if I may be so bold, I seriously question someone's Christianity when they begin talking like they're better than other people. I mean, the very core of Christianity is saying that you're a sinner and my only hope is Jesus Christ, that there's, there's no good thing in me. And so when you hear people who claim to be Christians, but they're talk, looking down on other people and talking down, oh, I'm just glad I'm not like them. There's actually, Jesus actually tells stories about people who are like that. He, he, there, there's one instance where he's got these two men that are praying and he says, here's this one guy and he's saying, I'm a sinner. And there's another guy saying, thank you God that I am not like these, this man here who's a sinner. And he says, which one? Which one is humble? And part of being a Christian is specifically saying, I am a sinner. Or like Paul, who, who thought of himself as the chief, the primary amongst, uh, amongst sinners. And so that's one of the essence. That, in fact, uh, there's a, one of our hymn writers put it this way. I'm only a sinner. What's the rest of it? Saved by grace. Only a sinner. Saved by grace. Or I like how Paul uh, wrote one time. He says, the good, even, he talks about the good that he now does. He said, the good that I now do isn't me, but Christ in me. And so we need to be careful and cautious when we start talking about sin that we don't disconnect it from ourselves. Finally, third warning here. There's a temptation. You're going to be tempted to disconnect this description from the state of our family and our friends and the people that we know. When we start talking about sin, and frankly it's because a lot of people we know, we know a lot of people that are not Christians, but we'd say they're good people. Right? And I put that good people. Right? They're good people. And we think... You think of your neighbor, this neighbor here, and you go, hey, he's a good guy. You know, he's a real good guy. Right? But don't let that confuse you. There will be plenty of what we might call good people that will spend eternity in hell. Absolutely. There are plenty of people specifically that Jesus says that will even, that Jesus says on the last day there will be many people who are standing before him, ready to go to heaven. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to say, but did we not call Lord, Lord? Did we not do this and did we not do that? And they start talking about the things that they've done. And, and Jesus says, I'm sorry, but I never knew you. There will be many people, he says, that are in that situation. And so don't disconnect this understanding. When we start talking about sin, it's easy to, to, to think about a far off, random person, somebody in prison that's really bad, or some person over here, all oh, the sin, sinners, right? It's easy to do that. But we can't be tempted to disconnect this from where we are at right now. So I want to encourage you today to avoid these temptations by really listening to this description of sin and seeing how does it apply to me, how does it apply to my situation of life right now. Now, let's take a look at exactly how bad off mankind is. Okay? Now this flows from chapter 1. Paul's talking about how great Jesus Christ is. And then he's going to immediately switch over here and he starts talking about mankind. He starts talking about sin. One of the reasons for that is this lifts up Christ even higher. It'd be one thing to say, hey, this guy climbed a mountain. But then if you say, what if you say, he started at the bottom of this canyon, right? Or let's say you say, there's this guy, he was heroic. He rescued five people from this fire. Really, who were they? They were five guys that were trying to kill him. And he pulled them out. He say, I mean, it just changes everything when you start thinking about the, the alternative side of things. And so that's exactly what Paul does. So, so let's ask the question, okay, doctor, how bad are we? How bad off? What's the situation? What does it look like? How ill are we? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says this. 
and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Dead. That is your spiritual state. Dead. We're not talking about ill or sick or even being in a coma spiritually. We're not talking about maimed or lame. Paul says your spiritual state before salvation is that you were dead. I I remember a, a song I used to hear as a kid and it was something about throwing out the life. Throw out the lifeline. You remember that song? Throw out, the, throw out the lifeline. Someone's sinking, right? Throw out the lifeline. Not a good description according to what Paul would say under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Because in that description, you're throwing out the lifeline. So you've got to grab a hold. But according to Paul, you were spiritually dead. So a better picture of this, if we're going to use a lifeline in a boat in the ocean, would be, yeah, you've seen a dead body floating. Right now, by the time they start floating on their own like that, they're they're a little bloated and decomposing. Right? I don't want to be gross, but if you want a real good picture of the spiritual state of mankind, you see the temptation already is happening. They start thinking about other people, the world out there that's out there, the sinners. Yeah, dead, dead. Paul, us, we, right, us. Spiritually speaking, mankind is dead. What happens? You throw out a lifeline to a dead body. Is he going to grab a hold? He's dead. You might knock something off, depending on how long, but dead. We're talking about spiritually dead. A, a, a person asking for help is not an accurate picture, according to Paul. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, this is exactly what God said would happen when sin entered the world. He warned Adam and Eve, he says, if you, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will die. You will surely die. That's how we usually hear it. You will surely die. In the Hebrew, there's no word for surely, right? It, it, there's actually, they, to, to describe something, we talk about this when we talk about big, right? Instead of saying very, they say just the word big twice. And technically, what it says in Genesis is this. If you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will be dead, dead. Right? Or somebody, dying, you shall die. Right? You will be literally dead, dead. That's what, that's what God said would happen. And as soon as they ate of that tree, they became spiritually dead. Their bodies began to physically die. And eventually they would experience an eternal state of death. Spiritually speaking, when sin entered the world, deadness came because of sin, as Paul says in other places. Okay? Now, I usually don't say they were, somebody was dead in something. I don't, usually don't throw the word in in there. You were dead in this or dead in that. But that's what, exactly what Paul said. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And so we, we throw in this extra description. You were, you were dead, but you were dead in trespasses. Now, the word trespasses literally means a fall or a lapse. It's used of a person who's lost their way. They're walking along and they've kind of taken a slight detour. Right? Or sin, trespasses in sin, dead in sin. Sin means literally to miss the mark. It's like if I had a bullseye on the back wall and I pulled the arrow back and I just missed it. That's what the word that we have translated as sin is missing the mark. Right? We have such a distorted view of sin. We, we, we paint sin as this, it's usually these horrible things, it's these blatant things. But technically speaking, in the Bible, sin and trespasses, and these words are very interchangeable, is just missing it. Anybody here would say right now, I, I know that I'm not the husband that I could be. You've missed it. I'm not the wife that I could be or should be. I'm not been the, 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 the child in my home that I should be. I, in fact, it's funny because we'll say things like that in, in response to thinking, like to reassure ourselves. Well, I know I'm not what I should be, but at least I'm not this. But you have to understand, sin in the Bible, that's it right there. You're already there. A 
a sinner is someone who's missed. God has this exactly what you are to be in His holiness and His righteousness. And sin is not being that. That paints a much broader picture of who's sinning, doesn't it? Are you the employee that you could have been or should have been? I mean, who of us would say, I've been everything that I was supposed to be and should be? There's not a one of us. I mean, we're dead, spiritually dead, but, but we're dead in this way. This offers such a better understanding of what it means to sin. I, this gets rid of the, I know I'm not what I should have been, at least I've not. See, that doesn't make any difference anymore. Paul talks about how he felt. I mean, because we know that sin and trespass mean, has to do with obeying God and doing what God says. But even if we narrow it down to just the commandments and the laws, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not covet. Don't, don't even want something that's outside of what God has given you. Don't want something that somebody else has. Don't even want it. Paul, Paul the Apostle, when he encountered that, he thought he was pretty good, but if you, when he starts sharing his own story, his own testimony, he, says, I thought was, he said, but then I ran across, don't covet. He says, in his words, he says, sin came alive and I died. You see what he's saying? Suddenly he realized, I'm dead too. I'm just as much of a sinner. Great, I didn't murder anybody. Great, I hadn't committed adultery, but... I've coveted my whole life. Sin came alive and I died. I mean, this is the essence of what it means to be spiritually dead in sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, says this, uh, In which you once walked, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. To walk, this word walk, is like a way of life. And so you could put it this way. We're dead. We're dead in our trespasses. We're dead in our sin. And, and sin has become a way of life. Like the walking dead, right? I mean, sin has become the way of life for us. You know, if I said this became a way of life for somebody, if I, if I saw somebody and said, you know, this has became their way of life, what would that mean to you? This has become their way of life. What's that mean? This is a real question. Yeah, their pattern of living, right? It's their pattern of doing things. It's their, their whole, like, this is, this is what they're all about. And that's what Paul says. He says, in, in, in which you once walked, this is your way of life or your pattern of life, the way that you're living. Uh, the central operating process in our head. For non-Christians, sin is a way of life. Now, I need to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail here. Okay? Because when I start talking this way, a nagging little thought starts popping up in my head. It starts nagging little question. And I'm going to deal with this more in just a moment, but, but I, I, I start talking about the sin is a way of life, and it's you're dead in sin, and dead in trespasses. And I, I start thinking, and I'm trying to think of a name that's not in here, because I don't, but you, you have a, your Uncle Jim Bob, or, you know, your, your you know, you know, see, I'm, I'm naming names in here. Uncle, I wanted to say Uncle Frank, but we have a Frank. Uh, you know, Bill. We don't have any Bills in here. Uh, what about Uncle Bill? Bill's Uncle Bill's a pretty good guy. Oh, we have an Uncle Bill, don't we? Well, forget it. Uh, what about what about him? He's a good guy. Our cousin, whatever, or or my neighbor. I mean, dead in sin. I mean, they're pretty good people. I mean, it, once again, this starts popping up in my head. I mean, to really say totally dead in sin. I mean, or especially when we start thinking about. People that we know that are not Christians, they, they're not part of church or going to church, they're not about any of that stuff. And we start thinking, but you know, I know that they've devoted most of their life to, say, like the local school, and they've given money to this thing or that thing, and they're very charitable in what they do. And I mean, they give you the shirt off their back. They're a great individual person. I mean, they're good, loving, kind, never say a mean thing to anybody kind of guy. I mean, Matt, I mean, seriously, I understand that this is what the Bible says once you were dead and your trespasses and sin, but I, I just don't see that. I don't see that when I look at people. I'm not thinking they're dead in their sin. I mean, he does all these good things or she does all these good things. And so a lot of times we're stumped by that. So let me ask you this question. What is God's main purpose for Every individual human being that's ever lived. What is his main purpose for that person? 
Anybody know? What's God's... Here, we, we could sound real theological. What is the chief end of man? What is God's main purpose? Somebody said it. To glorify God. I mean, the reason you exist is not just to be good. It's to glorify God. That's why you exist. And so there are plenty of people out there that they have given all their money to the poor. But they didn't do it to glorify God. So they've missed the point of their existence. In fact, it's an absolute and complete state of rebellion. Because the one thing that God wants of people is not just about being good people. It's about glorifying, giving your life over to the glory of Jesus Christ. It's not just about being good. In fact, if you understand that, then verses like this begin to make sense. John 6.29 says this, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. This is the thing. This is the thing. Don't miss this. this. The thing that God is doing, He's redeeming mankind by the goodness of Jesus Christ. And your one thing is to believe in that. And in fact, one of the most repulsive things you could do is to think in your head, I've been a good person, and to disregard Jesus. What a slap in the face to what God is doing. God is redeeming mankind. He has given His own Son to redeem all of mankind. And so it doesn't matter how good someone's been, if they haven't gotten that, if they haven't understood that, that it's not about their goodness, then they've missed the point entirely. And in fact, they're living in a state of rebellion against what God has deemed as the most important thing. And they're insulting to God by disregarding His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what sin is about. And now we can read Isaiah 64, 6, and it makes sense. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, or as some versions say, like a filthy rag. All of our righteous deeds, all of our, all the good things, take all of the good things you've ever done in your whole life, stack them all up, and they're repulsive to God. Why? I thought God liked good things. Yes. But none of our good things match up to the goodness of God. And more importantly, the way that God is redeeming mankind and bringing them back to Himself is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And so to hold on to your righteous deeds as good, that they matter to getting you to heaven and being right with God and that they are counting up towards something, is an insult to the work that Jesus has done. Why are they like filthy rags? Because of that. Because of that. It's insulting. It's insulting to the the God who loves you. Even the good things we do, Paul says this as well. He says, for when Gentiles, people who are not Jews, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. He goes on to say basically this. What this passage is talking about is basically this. When people do good things, the only purpose that it serves is to, is to stand as a testimony and a witness against them on the day of judgment. It will be like an ability for God to say, see, you knew right and wrong. It doesn't add up to their righteousness. Only Jesus. That's why we have songs that say things like that. Only Jesus. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. It's just but for the grace of God that I'm saved. It's only Him. And thinking in ourselves that our good deeds stack up to make anything. But now... Shift it off to those people that we have that we, we care about and we love them. Some of them are so caught up in that lie of Satan that you're a pretty good person so you don't have to worry. And that's such a lie. In fact, they are in the most desperate of situations. Because frankly, many people that are out there, they've murdered somebody, they're 
adultery and the drug addicts. You talk to most of them, they know they're sinners. They're halfway to, they're halfway to God's goodness, aren't they? But most of the people that we know are pretty good people. They don't know that they are in a desperate, desperate situation before God. They don't realize it. Those are the people we need to pray for the most, be concerned about the most, is those good people we know. Because the goodness, our own man's goodness, is what keeps us most from a loving God. But now, back to where we were at in Ephesians chapter 2. We're dead. We're dead in trespasses. We're dead in sins. It's become our entire way of life. Whether you're a drug addict and you're, you're living in sin that way and selfishness that way, or you're just a good person that's just refusing to acknowledge and, and accept and to live your life for the glory of God. If you're just doing your own thing. Like Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. It, just doing your own thing is, is repulsive to God. You've just gone your own way. Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquities, that sin of us all. But now, back to Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, next phrase, uh, following the course of this world. The word following means according to or down from. The word course actually is literally the word eon. Okay? Uh, most of the times in the Bible, in fact, all but this one time, when this word is used, it's translated as age, like an age of time, like an eon of time. And so following the course of this world, the age of this world, in other words, this, this way of life that you've adopted is completely in line with the world around you. The cosmos is what the Greek word is for world. The con- the, this world around you, the people around you, the, the system, right? It's referring to this whole system of this way of doing things, right? For us, it could be the American dream. For, for others, it's something different. It's just following the course of this world. This, this sinful state is just simply going along with the world and how the world is. And most of us, when we hear that, if we've been in church for a long time, you hear the world and you start thinking, ooh, wretched. And, but it's just doing your own thing and living your own way and having your own life and doing what you want to do is what it's all about. And you followed the way of the world. We might say the path of the world, Right? It's a way of life. It's the path of the world, following the path of the world. The next part of this statement goes into even more depth. Uh, Following the prince, not just following the course of this world, but following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The Greeks and the Jews uh, believed that the air was full of spirits. And this is truly a title... For Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air. He's been given some dominion over what's going on down here. Right? Now, we're dead. Think about the flow here. You're dead. You're dead in sin. This, this, this death and sin and trespasses flows from the world around you. You're just getting it from right from around you. But not just the visible world around you, but that invisible world around you, it's flowing from that path of that power of Satan. Whether it's the visible stuff, the invisible stuff, all of us have fallen in to right in this situation. The prince of the power of the air. And our entire environment is, is contrary to the things of God. You know, this also takes away us being neutral in this situation. Right? Us being neutral in this situation. Because we're in enemy territory. We're on Satan's side of things. And frankly, what a contrast from the last passage that talks about the Spirit of God working in those who believe. Here we have this Spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. In the same Spirit. You think about, when you think about the sons of disobedience, think about the worst people in this world that you know, and, and the same Spirit that's working in them is working in all human beings. And this is a horrible state that we're in. But now, Paul is going to shift from the you to the we in this verse. Okay? Listen to what he says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, uh, and the sons of disobedience. And what does he say? 
among whom we all once lived. Now, this is where Paul, like I said, switches from you to we. Lived means conducted ourselves, where we abide. This is our state of residence. Not just following this path, but now we've set up camp here, is what he's saying. You've lived in this. This is where you're living. This is what you're doing. Not only are we described as spiritually dead in sin, not only described as ones who are going with the flow of the world and of Satan, but now this is where we've set up our residence. And notice what he says next, right? This dead world satanic sinfulness is our abode, but also... Now he's going to dig inward. Now he's going to say basically this. Here's a stream. All the fish are swimming upstream. You're with all these fish, so you're swimming upstream too. But I don't want to miss something here. You're a fish, right? Even if all the other fish were gone, even if the stream was gone, you'd still be going this way. You'd still be headed this way. Listen to what Paul says next. You set up your residence here, right? He says this, verse 3. He says, Among whom we all once lived, in what? In the passions of our flesh. The word passion means what you want. Paul is basically saying this. All these, this bad, horrible news I've stated so far, this is exactly what you want. You're living in your wants. I want my life. I want these things. I want this. I want this thing here. You can see that so much in so much of what we recognize as sin. You can always find the want. I want this. I want this. And Paul's saying that's exactly where we're at. Notice he goes on to say, in the living in the passions of our flesh, right? living in our wants, it's a, it, sin has become our passion. Next he says this, he says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Carrying out means indulging. The, the word desires, one time this word is translated as desire, 57 times in the New Testament is translated as the word will. Like choice, right? My own personal free will is headed this direction. The will of the body, the flesh, and also the mind, the intellect, and the thoughts. In other words, this is the way you're going. This is the way you're headed. Let me ask you a question. Does mankind have a free will? Yes. The problem is not whether or not we have a free will. It's this. If I had, and I was, I was thinking about bringing a ball up here with me, but if I had a ball, and I, and I held it right here, and I say, now, could the ball go up or down? Technically, it could go up or down or right or left or any direction, right? But if I let go of the ball, which way is it going to go? Down. Why? Because that is its nature, right? It's to fall. Mankind, the problem with mankind is this. Do we have a free will? Yes. Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they had the ability to choose right or choose wrong. After they sinned, the ability was still there, but what was lost was the nature. It's not that, they can't, that, it's not that we cannot choose good. It's that we will never choose good. Because we, at our very core, are spiritually dead beings. We cannot do it. We cannot choose good. This is what many describe as... Total depravity. This is what we talk about when we talk about total depravity. It's that mankind, there's not one of us that's good. No, not one, the Bible says. None are good. None seek after God. Nobody seeks after God, Paul says in Romans. There's none good. No, not one. There's nobody who in and of themselves are going to begin to seek after God. All of their own accord. Because none of us are good. The final statement he says is this. Right? And we're by nature. And we're by nature. That means our birth and our upbringing. We're by nature children of wrath. Just like everybody else. Just like everybody else. Children of wrath. To be a child of wrath speaks to the inevitable and the just outcome of the sinful state that we're born into. So now you're thinking, where's the good news, Matt? 
Where's the good news? This is horrible news. This news doesn't leave any hope. There's nothing in this passage that gives some little glimmer of, well, you can rise up out of it. You can pull yourself up. You can be a good person. No, because even our righteous deeds are filthy rags. Where's the hope? Where's the good news? I'm going to give you a little glimpse of next week. See, because we went through verses 1, 2, and 3, right? What's coming up next? One, my, my two favorite words in the whole Bible. What are they? I've got to skip ahead. Are we ready? But God. That's, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. Mankind, not one of us is good. There's none of us. We've all turned away. The Bible is full of dis- these dis- descriptions of mankind. And it's not but us, but maybe there's a chance we might. No, 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 no. But God. God is merciful. And He's going to take care of this problem. That's the good news. God is the gospel. He's the good news. Christ is the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. That the the problem was insurmountable. But God is the good news. We're dead in sin. Our, our whole way of life is according to the world and Satan. In the very core of our being, we do not seek God. We do not love God. We do not want the things of God. This is not simply a desperate state. It is impossible. But God. Now, why is this important? And we'll end with this. Why is it important? Number one is this. Because, God, because this is all past tense. For Christians. You notice that as he was going through there? You were once this. You were this. At one time you were this. It's past tense. Right? It's past tense. If this is not past tense, there, 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 there would be... Now, this is important for us because if this is not past tense for you, if you were hearing this description, and, and, and a simple issue, I pretty much do what I want. I live my life how I want to. I go to church when I want. If I don't want to, I don't go. I do the right thing when I want. When I don't want to, I don't. I still pretty much live my life by just what I want to do. That's how it was. And so you have to ask the question at some point, if you're still continuing just living your own life and doing your own thing and looking out for what you want to do, you're, you might still be missing the point. The Bible is full of, again and again and again, Paul is always telling people that that go to church and that would call themselves Christians to to always check and make sure you're part of the faith. And this is a good way to take a step back and say, can I, can I with Paul say, we were this, now something different. We, we were over here, but now something's changed. We, we were back here and now there's... That my, and it's not just about being a good person, it's about there's been a whole heart change. Because that's what it's about. Can you honestly say, yeah, absolutely, I can see it clearly. And if it's foggy for you, there's good cause for you to say, okay, God, I'm not sure. You don't get sure by praying another prayer, by doing one more thing. That's not how you make sure you're saved. You make sure you're saved. You know that you're saved because the power of God is in your life. It's not because of, I did that, well, I, I did that, I pray, I know I did this, I prayed this prayer when I was eight, and so now I know for sure. That, that's not in the Bible. How do you know? You know because the power of God is in you. And you see it working and changing you. And you, you sit there every once in a while in your life and you go, who is this person? I would never do this. God, this can only be you. And then you start echoing Paul, the good that I do is not me, it's Christ in me. I know me, I'm, I would not be doing this, this would not be me. Oh Lord, thank you. And then you continue to, to pray and think that way. We talked with the teens today about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is such an amazing guy because Nicodemus came to Jesus... Nicodemus recognized Jesus was from God. Nicodemus even went the next step of recognizing that Jesus was supernatural. And that what Jesus said was true. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Right? 
See, it's power. The power of God and the Spirit of God. And he goes on to describe what we call as being born again, the new birth, a spiritual birth. Being saved is about the power of God, the power of Christ in us. And so maybe this is you. Maybe you're going, man, I don't have the power of Jesus working in me. I'm a pretty good person. I'm not doing this or this. And See, already there's a problem, isn't there? When you start to fall back on, I'm, but I'm not doing, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. You're, oh, there's already an issue. So Christianity at its core is saying, I'm a sinner. My only hope is Jesus Christ. That is my one and only hope. Reason number two why this is important is this. Some people need to get lost before they can get saved. Right? So there's a lot of people. See, we live in a different situation than in Ephesus. Ephesus, Christianity was brand new. In America, that's not the case. There's a lot of people who've heard about Jesus and they, they would say, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe He was there. And Yeah, sure. But... Does that mean they're saved? And some of us, we get so stumped by it. Well, okay, I guess you're all right. And we walk away. We don't know what to say. We need to recognize that we are sinners. And they need to recognize that they are sinners. And part of our job is sharing the gospel, which you are called to do. And there's not one person in this room that is exempt from that command of God. And if you have not been obedient to be sharing the gospel, every time you get a chance, then you have not been obedient to God. And so part of sharing that gospel for us in America is this. You've got to be able to share the bad news of the good news. You've got to be able to understand what does it mean to be a sinner and that you're a sinner and that they're a sinner and that we're all sinners and that there's none good, not one. Thirdly, to understand this fallen state helps us to glorify God even better. When you recognize that you are absolutely, totally... I mean, then finally you get grace. There's a lot of people that view salvation as... God did His part, and I'm doing my part, and God, and God did His part. You're, you're robbing God of the glory. God claims all of the glory for Himself. It is all grace. And we're going to get to later on in this passage. Well, what about faith? God actually claims that as a gift that He's given you. God deserves all of the glory. And part of understanding that glory is understanding just how bad off we are as sinners. Finally, for me, and I hope for you, it helps me to live in the gospel. See, because I'm still a sinner. I'm still, all the time. And and the closer I get to God, the more sinful I feel like I am. But the, the good news of the gospel is this, that I can come before God, and I don't have to have been able to say, well, I've been pretty good the last few days, so can I ask you for something? No. It's different. The gospel says, I, there's not one good thing in me, God. I don't have anything in myself that's good. My entire dependence is on Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I'm going to come to you right now purely out of the gospel because I believe that Jesus is enough. And so, right in the middle, in fact, my wife and I were reading a book that talked about this exact thing, right in the middle of a bad day, and you're having a bad day. You, you've not been living like you were supposed to live. You've not been doing the right things. And, you know, oh, some of us, we have a bad day. We don't even feel like we can pray. We don't feel like we can come to God. And, or we start to think about something we want to pray for. And we're like, I can't come to God because I, I, Lord, you know what I just did 10 minutes ago. How can I even come to you? The gospel. So the gospel is great for a bad day. But I think even more importantly, it's good for the good days. Because, see, you have a good day and you start thinking what? I'm pretty good. Not just I'm pretty. I'm pretty good. I've had a good day. And so then you you come with more boldness before God, and now I can really pray to you, God, because I've been pretty good, so now I can really... That is the essence of sin. To come before God because you've been pretty good? What an insult to Him. And so the Gospel is there to remind you again, wait, you're, you're a sinner, and your hope is Jesus. And so in the good days, even more, I need to live in the gospel, recognizing it's only Jesus and my righteous, all my righteous deeds stacked up to the, the, the ceiling, stacked up to the sky. All my righteous deeds are nothing but a bunch of junk to God. The only things are the ones that Jesus has done and what he's done in us. It's all him and none of us, right? So these are good, valuable things to learn. Next week, we're going to jump into the good news in a big way. 
and understand what is that good news. So it would be a much happier message. This one was kind of depressing. But it's a good kind of... I mean, this is the kind of thing I walk through this week going, man, I'm a sinner. And I found myself being more dependent on Jesus this week because I kept recognizing how sinful... Because when I was going through the dead and sin and this, and I was like, man, that's a lot like me. And when you do that, you're able to walk away from it saying, I'm really dependent on you. Now, I've talked too long, and so I'm going to... I don't normally do this, but I'm going to move the communion to this afternoon. Um, so we're, we're right at 12 o'clock, so I want to let you guys go. Um, but we're going to have this this afternoon. Uh, if you can make it, great. Uh, we're going to actually talk about, like I said, is Jesus the only way? And so it stems right from this into that what we're going to talk about this afternoon. And so I'm excited about what we're going to be discussing together. Let me pray and I'll let you guys leave. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I absolutely trust you today that, Lord, whether I get to see this with my own eyes or not, Lord, I know that your Spirit was here today. Lord, I know that there are those in this room that your Spirit has been working on them and, and you've been drilling down deep into hard, cold, stubborn hearts, God, and I, I believe absolutely in your amazing power to save us. So God, I want to take just a moment before we leave. Lord, I know that there are some in this room, they're, they're your children. They know they're sinners. They know their only hope is Jesus Christ. And they're living dependent on the gospel. Lord, I pray for those people this week, God, that you would strengthen them in your gospel message. Lord, help them to grow in this gospel message, to depend even more. Lord, help them to even more recognize how sinful they are, but then at the same time, cling even more to the goodness of Jesus Christ. Lord, there are some in this room that though they have an appearance of godliness, they still do not know the power of Jesus Christ and the strength of your spirit that brought him back from the dead. Lord, their life is not characterized by the same spirit that, that raised Jesus up, that resurrection power. Lord, they don't have that in their life. God, I pray for those that are in this room right now that are convinced of their salvation, but they really aren't, Lord, and only you know. But God, I pray that you would, like, like with the blind man, peel back the scales from the eyes so that they might see. Or like Lazarus, who is dead in the tomb, beginning, the Bible says, beginning to stink. Or when you spoke, come out, life was infused back into that dead body. Lord, I believe in your spirit. I believe in your power. I believe, God, that you are working in this church today. And I pray only that you would continue your work because this is your church. And Lord, I claim every person in this room, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I claim them for your kingdom. And I pray that not one of them would escape your powerful grace, your sovereign grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.